Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Carolina Mendez, today's host and internal medicine PGY3 at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a topic that's a frequent reason for both inpatient consults and clinic referrals to the endocrinology service, hypercalcemia. Our wonderful guest who will help us understand a little bit more about calcium and bones today is Dr. Fariel Mirza. So Dr. Mirza has completed her internal medicine residency training at Rush West Lake in Illinois, her endocrinology fellowship at the University of Connecticut. She has also completed clinical research in endocrine hypertension at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, as well as a Women's Health Fellowship at the University of Connecticut. She's now an Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism here at UConn and Director for the Osteoporosis Clinic. Dr. Mirza, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Carolina. It is a pleasure for me to be participating with you in this podcast. Wonderful. Let's get started then. So, Dr. Mirza, uh, when assessing a patient with elevated serum calcium, what should be the initial steps in our diagnostic approach? So, the first step when we that we look at when we see a high calcium is, well, what is the parathyroid hormone level? So, if somebody has to ask you what's the single best next test that you would want to do, that should be parathyroid hormone because that will help you differentiate between primary parathyroid-related etiologies or other etiologies for hypercalcemia. So what conditions do you include in the parathyroid-related etiologies? So parathyroid etiologies are conditions where there is excess of parathyroid hormone. As you know that the calcium parathyroid hormone curve is a sigmoidal curve. And conditions that increase calcium should result in decrease of the parathyroid hormone level. If parathyroid hormone level does not decrease appropriately, those are the conditions that are parathyroid mediated. And some of the common conditions, or rather the most common condition in that category is primary hyperparathyroidism, Mm -hmm. which can be related to a parathyroid adenoma or parathyroid hyperplasia. Other uh, less common etiologies in that same category include familial hypocalciuric hyperparathyroidism, where there is a set point change in the parathyroid feedback loop through the calcium sensing receptor, which can also result in hypercalcemia. Other conditions include various multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes, where again there is a change in the set point typically related to uh, enlargement of the parathyroid gland, but there's a genetic mutation again anytime there's a parathyroid-related hypercalcemia. Other rare conditions like thiazide-induced hypercalcemia, lithium-induced hypercalcemia, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism also mediate high calcium through excess parathyroid hormone. And how about the non-parathyroid-related causes? So non-parathyroid-related causes is a whole bag full of different conditions. Uh, The most common one that we think about first and foremost, if we see a low parathyroid level upon checking after noticing a high calcium level, the first thing you have to think about is, could this be a malignancy? Mm -hmm. So various tumors could cause this. Various medications like thiazide could also cause hypercalcemia, although that is a little, uh, that's more parathyroid mediated. Um, Several other conditions such as granulomatous conditions, which by increased production of 125-dihydroxy vitamin D 
can mediate hypercalcemia. When I talk about malignancies, there's a whole bag full. There are some that can mediate that through production of parathyroid hormone-related protein, which mediates the hypercalcemia, while others can be through increased bone resorption mediated through the rank ligand pathway. Still others could do it through excess production of cytokines that mediate bone breakdown. So still talking about the epidemiology, what are the most common causes and how does the setting, meaning inpatient versus outpatient, change you know, the, the frequency of the cases that we see? Right. So the, we do tend to see slightly different epidemiology in the inpatient and outpatient setting. Additionally, the epidemiology is also different based on the severity of hypercalcemia. Most of the benign conditions are typically not associated with severe hypercalcemia. In the hospital setting, typically we are more likely to see malignancies because these patients have a high enough calcium that causes them to present. Talking about malignancies could be various malignancies, including lung cancer, lymphomas, myeloma, or various tumors that may be producing ectopic PTH or parathyroid hormone-related protein. Another important malignancy to consider, although relatively rare, is parathyroid carcinoma, in which case the uh, numbers, the calcium levels could be much higher. In an outpatient setting, primary hyperparathyroidism is more commonly seen. If patients are on thiazide diuretics, we do ask them to stop it. The workup depends on what our suspicion is. First thing, when we see a high parathyroid and a high calcium, we have to look at, well, is the urine calcium also high or not? Mm -hmm. And we look for conditions like osteoporosis or other conditions that could be a consequence of, uh, consequence of high calcium that is parathyroid-mediated. Malignancy could also do the same thing with respect to osteoporosis or fractures, but we will see a lower parathyroid hormone level. And Dr. Mirza, what are some of the clinical manifestations of hypercalcemia? The clinical manifestations vary. They can start with something like decreased mentation, slowing, constipation, depression are some of the common clinical manifestations that we see in cases of severe hypercalcemia. If hypercalcemia has developed insidiously, patients tend to develop tolerance to the higher calcium level and you do not see as many of the mental status changes that we see in acute hypercalcemia situations. So now, when it comes to treatment, it will, of course, depend on, like you said, the severity and the chronicity of the hypercalcemia. Could we maybe first go over the cases of newly diagnosed, so acute hypercalcemia, and how to approach these patients? Right. So and most of the time when these are newly diagnosed, acute hypercalcemia, we're talking about an inpatient setting. Right. And these tend to be severe hypercalcemia. Not uncommonly, we see that people will have a high creatinine. They could be very dehydrated because the kidneys are trying to uh, normalize the calcium level. So they are uh, trying to diurese significantly with high urine calcium content. Mm -hmm. So they are very dehydrated. So the first step in management is to initiate hydration, which by itself plays a very important role in bringing the calcium down. Very commonly, people may say, well, maybe initiate a diuretic like furosemide, which we highly discourage, unless we have already hydrated the patient very well and we have tried everything else. The next thing that we try to do in acute hypercalcemia is give calcitonin, which does have a, a time frame of up to 48 hours during which it may act in terms of reducing the calcium level. Beyond that, it does not have much of a benefit. 
Thirdly, if there's a severe hypercalcemia, we also want to start the patient on bisphosphonates because various factors that are mediating hypercalcemia are doing that through increased bone breakdown, which is from where calcium is being released. So giving bisphosphonates will stop the bones from letting out the calcium. Additionally, in very severe cases, we can also give a rank ligand antibody, but typically in the hospital setup, for example, here at UConn, we use pomidronate and we can get approval for zolidronic acid, which is a longer acting bisphosphonate, but that's usually the exception. Uh, so those are some of the things we do for acute hypercalcemia. Yeah, and you actually brought up a great point, Dr. Mirza, that I remember being on call and having that question myself uh, on the patients that are very dehydrated and have that change in kidney function or if they have CKD at baseline. Do we have to change anything? I think the bisphosphonate, is that contraindicated? So should we pick something else or just the dose? How do, how do you go about that? That's an excellent point. So bisphosphonates can be given, but they are contraindicated if uh, GFR, calculated GFR is less than 35 ml per minute. In that case, you cannot give um, bisphosphonate, so you have to do a denosumab, which is a rank ligand antibody. And then how about, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about chronic hypercalcemia management? Yes, so for chronic hypercalcemia, which we often see in our patients with mild hyperparathyroidism, we encourage them to drink lots of fluids, stay well hydrated, which is the biggest thing. Dehydration will increase the calcium level. So other than that, uh, if there is a parathyroid-mediated etiology, and if they meet the criteria for surgical intervention, we encourage them to have the surgery done, and there are specific criteria that we have to follow for that. If they do not meet the criteria or if they, are, you know, they can continue to be well hydrated, we do have older patients who are not good surgical candidates who may gradually be getting worsening hypercalcemia. In that situation, we can actually use the calcimimetics in a calcet, which the calcium sensing receptor perceives as you know, uh, having extra calcium. So even though with most of the hypercalcemia, parathyroid set point is changed, but it still responds to the high calcium level. And because of that, the calcium mimetic can help lower the calcium level um, and possibly the parathyroid hormone level. And you already went over a little bit of the things that I'm going to ask about in terms of disease-specific interventions, because you mentioned surgery, uh, parathyroid surgery. Are there any other that you can think of in terms of the specific causes? So in terms of specific causes, I'll just divide them up into some different categories. I think we talked about parathyroid-related causes. Initially, I did not mention parathyroid cancer, but that also comes in parathyroid-related causes, but it is a malignancy that needs more aggressive approach. In terms of other non-parathyroid causes, I want to give some of the conditions that we commonly see in medical practice. So when we talk about granulomatous conditions, you know, things like sarcoidosis, histiocytosis X. Um, so those are granulomatous conditions, even sometimes in tuberculosis. There's one alpha hydroxylase expression that's going on in the macrophages. So the hypercalcemia is mediated through excessive one alpha hydroxylation with increased vitamin D activation. In that case, something like uh, prednisone, steroids will help reduce the hypercalcemia in that case. So uh, different things, you know, I'm just kind of bringing in the treatment options here too, since right. we were talking about that before. Those are different things you have to consider. Then there are endocrine-mediated causes of hypercalcemia, such as hyperthyroidism, which causes excessive bone breakdown, resulting in hypercalcemia also, in which case you really have to treat the underlying condition, which is hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so those are different things that you're looking out for. Wonderful. And then last but not least, uh, are there cases when you would place these patients on any prophylactic measures to prevent recurrent hypercalcemia? So the prophylactic measure would be senacalcid that I talked about, which, okay. is, a, uh, which is a calcium emetic, so okay. that they can keep the calcium level under control. Also in severe cases, you know, like I said, we had talked about earlier, we can give uh, denosumab in severe hypercalcemia, you know, and from oncologic perspective, for cancer therapy, we can actually give that once a month also for severe hypercalcemia. But hydration is the key. I do want to bring up one condition that I didn't mention earlier is something called milk alkali syndrome, where yeah. people may be taking high doses of antacids like Tums or Rolaids, which have high doses of high amounts of calcium. And those can also result in renal insufficiency and severe hypercalcemia. In which case, again, hydration and holding those supplements would be the key. How often do you see that in clinical practice? It's not uncommon. I think increasingly people are more conscious about it, so it's less common to see that. Although we do come across a case, I think a couple of times a year, hmm. we do see that. We also have had, so, you know, when we talked about treatment uh, for primary hyperparathyroidism, the treatment is basically parathyroid surgery. Depending on the etiology, sometimes patients may develop post-operative hypoparathyroidism or underactive parathyroid, in which case they are treated with calcitriol, which is the active vitamin D. We also have had occasional patients with hypercalcemia that is related to taking too much calcitriol or too much calcium supplement. So the, the entire clinical scenario needs to be kept in mind mm -hmm. when we are trying to figure out what's the underlying etiology. Dr. Mirza, it was an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us today. We appreciate you taking the time to help us understand this very important topic. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you soon.